0: Everyone, quick reminder nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I, and our guests, may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. Back with another episode of Empire, we have the man, the myth, the legend, Jared Dicker. Uh, For those who don't know, Jared has spent uh, the last five or so years in crypto, uh, first as a CEO slash founder, maybe founder CEO of Poet, uh, which was building kind of media rails uh, inside of crypto, kind of putting content on chain, if I remember correctly. Uh, And then I remember, Jared, I think you left Poet went over to become VP of commercial at the Washington Post, kind of tasked with, you know, obviously Bezos bought the Washington Post, had to move from being not just a uh, media company into being a media and tech company. You were kind of tasked, if I remember, uh, to you know, trying to figure out like how to turn WAPO into a tech company. Now you're back into crypto. It's good to have you back. You are now uh, on the crypto team at the Chernin Group, which has obviously... Uh, Led a lot of investments in things like uh, Crunchyroll and Barstool, uh, and is now investing deeper into crypto. Starting, I think, with with uh, was it Dapper Labs? Maybe it was the first crypto investment you guys made. So
1: yes, yes. Yeah. So we, um, I'd say, in well, the first crypto investment the firm made in general was in OpenSea seed round mm. back in 2018, and then started focusing a lot more um, mainly on the later stage. So in 2021, invested in Dapper Labs. Uh, I think in May of 2021, led the series A of Zed Run. And at that point is really when I joined and we really felt there was an opportunity, um, especially on the founder side to work with um, investors, you know, that that are operators that understand how to scale businesses um, at the earliest stages. So since then, we've been investing a lot more um in the late stage, but also in the earlier stage of crypto, working with companies like Altered State Machine and Rabbit Hole and Poop on Cyber um, and a bunch of others that you know we're excited to roll out over the next couple months.
0: Nice, good stuff, man. Well, I'm uh, I'm calling this my my selfish podcast episode where I just get <laughs> to ask you all of the uh, questions that I'm thinking about and that, that Mike and I talk about on. Uh, over beers and on the weekend chats of, you know, Blockworks just hit 50 employees. We were grow really uh, fast-growing media company. And Mike and I are thinking about just how can we push deeper into crypto, right? Uh, we are, our pre-sale for our NFTs is Tomorrow, we're recording this on March 28th. We'll probably release it, the episode, April 7th. So that'll be the date of the reveal for the NFT. So that's kind of our first Massive. big push into, yeah, into just kind of more of a crypto native thing instead of uh, building a crypto media company on Web2 Rails. How can we start to build more on Web3 Rails? So this is my selfish podcast episode. But before we get into crypto, Jared, I just want to ask you, I mean, you've been in the media space since like 2008, my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just... Yes paint me this picture almost. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, but I I think it's experience, not old, right? Uh, Can you paint me a picture? I mean, I like
1: to believe that too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The kind of the transformation of the industry and like what the media space looks like, what, what the last like 13 years for media have looked like and, and, and tying it back to where are we at in March, 2022 today? The
1: space was different. I mean, like the the main focus at that time was really to build a large audience, get a lot of eyeballs. You didn't really discern between who your audience was like, you know, um, a, a kind of daily active user was a daily active user and you monetized by way of advertising or you sold on that scale. Uh, or that audience, and you know, now a decade later, as we move to like subscription models and new bottoms-up type media models, right? Like you know that um, each individual within your audience has a different value, and there's a lot of you know interesting things that you could do there. But back then, it was really more about scale, and very quickly the Huffington Post beat out the New York Times and CNN and was you know number one in ComScore, which was the way you rated kind of the value to advertisers of what your platform could do, and we did that pretty quickly from going, being a blog to, you know, becoming a, uh, becoming a media company acquired by AOL. Um, I do think like, while things are very different where like now it's really more about more deeply engaging your audience, thinking about how people could participate deeper, you know, in forms of content and even now in forms of revenue and investing. uh, There are still a lot of synergies that I get excited about that I always, advocate anyone building media in this space to like not just look forward as to how to disrupt, but like look back and see what things didn't work, but also what things worked. And community, you know, even though a loaded term was always just a massive opportunity and was kind of the um, the main value add of how the Huffington Post grew so quickly. And it was mainly because we built a very kind of robust and inviting ecosystem in the comments section Um, We would aggregate content from top publishers and like just better distill it or write original content or have like celebrity bloggers or influential bloggers come in and write. And we really tried to draw a lot of attention to the comment section, like people discussing the article, um, you know, having conversations with one another, but really thinking about how they could spend more time there. That led to creating this like very robust badging system that encouraged people to self-moderate these arenas and highlight conversations from the community and earn kind of cred that allowed you to be more front and center on the platform itself or distribute deeper or even blog and get a Huffington Post URL slash Jared Dicker um, type type, uh, profile, which was, you know, highly valuable at that time. And we're kind of seeing, you know, a lot of similar traits now that, you know, people, when they spend time within these, you know, ecosystems or platforms, they want to be able to build their value, build their cred. Um, they want to be able to unlock new opportunities that others may not have because they're a super user or a core contributor. And where the major shift has really happened from, you know, 2010 digital media to, let's say, like 2020 era digital media is that, you know, it's not just about these intrinsic kind of value props where you know i could blog on the huffington post so that gives me validation and legitimacy to maybe build audience elsewhere or get better distribution but now it's more extrinsic as well that i could actually you know invest um you know financially in the creators that i believe most about i could possibly earn upside on their success alongside them i could help manage and direct you know some, some like big decision-making that happens both on the editorial side or on the business side. So it's really kind of brought through that feeling of people want to be deeper involved. They're spending their time here. How do you build like value and the utility for them to do that to now even going further where it's not just about social, but it's also about financial too and how you take those learnings and make them effective in this, in this era of media.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's interesting to think about Huffington post, uh, Everyone in crypto and Web3 talks about community, community first, trying to build community. Huffington Post, that was probably one of their biggest innovations in this community. It reminds me of uh, like Gawker did it too. Gawker with Kinja, the group chats yes. and things like that. So let me let me keep zooming out though to stay high level for a second on just like the state of media. Because I really want to get your take on that before jumping right into crypto. So when I look at the last... 20 years of media, kind of a hard question of how do you, how do you give an overview of the last 20 years of media (laughs) in three sentences? But for me, it kind of looks like, okay, you had all these blogs in the early 2000s. Then in 2006, Twitter comes along and kind of decimates a lot of the blogs, the bloggers move on to Twitter. And that got that kind of Twitter took over the blogging space uh, originally, then some journalists and things like that started moving onto Twitter by 2008, 2009, 2010, Facebook came along and was really starting to eat the the ad revenue of a lot of the media companies. So then the media companies basically said, oh, shit, and they start bundling things up. And then you have a big like rebundling, I would say, in the early 2000, uh, early 2010s, Uh, New York times, WAPO, things like that. And they all said, okay, well, Facebook and Google are eating our lunch when it comes to the ad revenue. Let's launch subscription revenue uh, and let's turn on subscriptions, right? Paywall, 10 bucks a month, whatever it might be. And then what happens is that model starts having success and New York times and WAPO have a lot of success doing this. Uh, And then what happens is 2017, uh, Substack launches, right? And then it's like, okay, Now, the last three years have been their great unbundling uh, and still on the back of this subscription revenue. uh, And, you know, everyone's saying ads are bad, ads are bad. uh, But really, you had this like big unbundling uh, where reporters and journalists are moving over to Substack. Along the way, you have kind of two other types of media companies that got created. You had like the... Less focused on the editorial website, more focused on, quote, owning the audience with, like, the morning brews and the hustles with the newsletter-first businesses. And then you had the creator, uh, more like the creator bundles, a a la, like, the barstool sportses of the world. So now you've got, and so where we're sitting at today in 2022, I think you have, like, maybe four types of media companies. You've got the individuals creating on Substack. You've got these, like, newsletter-first uh, kind of got created in the last five years type of media companies, Morning Brews, the Hustles that are now starting to add events and add webinars and add an editorial site. Then you have these like creator bundles, like the Barstool Sports of the world. And then you have your mm-hmm. legacy media companies. In finance, you have the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. In just like greater news, you have you know the New York Times, for example, Washington Post. So that's kind of what the state of media looks like in my mind today. I want to flip it back to you and say, as the media, the real media expert here. How did I do there?
1: Yeah, no, no. I think I think all those observations are pretty right on. Um, But the one thing that, like, I think runs through everything you've been talking about is the relationship that audience and consumers have with media companies, and like the value of both programming and the accrual of like reputation. Like, you want to trust. You want to more deeply understand and feel a connection with, you know, the media companies or individuals that you're working with. And that takes time. Like, I think the dominance of brand, let's say brand led media throughout the 90s and the 2000s were mainly like around like the fact that they had an own distribution pre social age. It was about, you know, buying a newspaper or going to a company's website or getting that information they controlled all of that. And then when social came out, it kind of decentralized that, that, that whole relationship, people were just spending time elsewhere and wanting content there. The second was like that these brands have spent, you know, decades if not a century building reputation. Like they've gone through the ebbs and flows and ups and downs and they've earned that value. Right. And I think like reputation, um, can't really be learned, it really needs to be earned. And that takes, you know, time and a lot of practice and a lot of work. Um, so there was a very like quick head start, both in terms of brand media companies, owning the distribution and the way people got content and then being able to like build that value and reputation over years and years and years and years, and years of creating a product and value for customers. And as distribution kind of broke down, the idea of how you accrued reputation really changed as well, like the the disruption of digital media in 2010, where you had the HuffPosts and the BuzzFeeds and, um, you know, the Mike.coms and the Vice and the Voxes that really leaned in on, well, how do we start to think about how media is distributed now and lean into that, right? If people are spending time on Facebook, how do we create content that's native to Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or any of these other platforms, which... A lot of the legacy brand-led media ignored for a very long time. That disrupted brand-led media because it was really about like distribution and getting content to the audience wherever they were. Like a great example is like I remember at the Huffington Post when Michael Jackson died. Um, you know, we we had this amazing like rendering algorithm for headlines that would like test how headlines would work in SEO and in social, and like the final headline was like Michael Jackson dead, and that was because when people or like Michael Jackson died, something like that. Because when people went to Google or when they were searching elsewhere, that's what they would type in and you'd want to be the first result for like five years between like 2010 and 2015, I'd say pre-Trump era. um, Nobody really looked at the URL before they clicked. So like when you went to social or when you saw, or sorry, when you went to search or when you saw something on social, the game was really about being like the highest ranked because whether you were the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed, it was really about convenience over quality at that time. And when you went to go find information on you know, Google to see if Michael Jackson died, if the first result was Huffington Post, you didn't look at the URL, you just clicked and that's where you consume that content. Um, so that was kind of like the unbundling of brand-led media in the digital space because they really leaned into the idea of how distribution has changed. But then reputation came back. I mean, reputation really started to come back and beyond the forefront, I'd say, when Trump kind of came into office and when a lot of rhetoric was around deep fakes and fake news and, you know, the information you may be consuming may not be what you presume it to be. Um, and that's where, you know, a lot of these legacy media companies, especially in news, really took the crown back. Like the New York Times became more powerful than ever. Washington Post became more powerful than ever. Wall Street Journal became more powerful than ever. They started shifting their models, right, to kind of like, move away from the ad dominated, just ad dominated model that Google and Facebook, as you mentioned, was really starting to take control over and move towards subscriptions. And because of that reputation and leaning into that sentiment that people want great content, they want programming that's deeply invested in, that's true, that's valuable, that's quality, um, that started to become more of the the value um, uh, priority for these consumers. So it kind of shifted back. And then I think reputation carries us through like where we are now. Like, I think distribution is still like the most important thing, but people have gotten very creative around how not to sacrifice like reputation or quality for distribution. Um, And when you had, you know, twitter building the ability for any individual to build their own reputation either like if they're in media on top of the brand itself like i'm a writer for the washington post you know i could build my cred on the washington post but also now on twitter i have a different point of view people are following me because i work at the washington post and because i have this different point of view and i'm able to start accruing that there we start to see this age of like reputation on the individual like what it starts to look like when you're pulling bylines and writers out of you know, the media companies themselves, they're creating their own content, they're, you know, being perceived in their own way. And that led to, you know, substacks starting to emerge where individuals could kind of build you know a company around around that sort uh, sort of point of view or even now where we are in like the more web3 space where people talk about a bottoms up media company well what does that look like that starts to look like you know you as an individual creator teaming up with maybe another creator that already has an audience and maybe that audience wants to participate as well and that starts to move up but shifting the models around you know just The relationship of subscribers and advertisers just being with the brand to now the ability to have that more one-on-one type connection, I think really starts to like move us and shift us into the space where you may live in a world one day where like the New York Times you know, encourages you to subscribe to an individual writer um, or, you know, you have a lot more like deeper partnerships where like maybe like a freelancer doesn't just write for the byline of The Times, but The Times is actually like linking and partnering with, you know, maybe another brand like a Morning Brew or an individual that has a massive audience. But we're starting to like shift more towards that way. So I think the reputation side is just increasingly interesting because I think in order for these companies To just move beyond the initial pop like that longevity has to be a tighter you know more trusting type relationship and i think we're seeing how you know brand media companies have done that for a while digital media companies have kind of like lost that a little bit because a lot of their talent has left and their focus was really more around like distribution and getting eyeballs to now this kind of like new emergence of companies which are you know anyone could become a media company if you could understand distribution and build your audience and how people are starting to leverage those those tools to build that
0: yeah it's really interesting I mean you talk about the vices and the Voxes and the Huffington posts and the and the BuzzFeed there are kind of two underlying themes there one is or two underlying things that those companies did one is they raised a boatload of venture capital money and two is they optimized for social and that was really hot like early 2000 2010s every everyone wants to go work at BuzzFeed right and then you realize that there were some flaws in that model uh, which is i mean we, we don't have to get like it, it very tough for a media company to optimize to be entirely reliant on something like Twitter and Facebook, they change the algorithm, you get entire, completely screwed, right? So then you get the new newer media companies like the Hustles and the Morning Brews and, and the Barstool Sportses. But now I think it's 2022 and we're starting to maybe see some, some issues with some of those models, uh, like something like Barstool Sports. Maybe, I don't know how their business is doing. It seems like from an outsider point of view, seems like it's going really well. But I know a lot of media companies today are having trouble retaining talent right? Because of things like Substack. And this is where crypto maybe comes into it and gets kind of interesting. You've got this great piece, I think it was 2020, you wrote it about how media companies are structured, should be structured more like talent companies. Can you kind of get into this thesis and share like what you think the media company of the next five to 10 years looks like centering centering around this thesis of media companies as talent agencies?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a few themes to, I think, hit on there. Um, One, it's funny. I did, I did look at that media record labels article to see when it published. It's almost been like two years. um, Crazy. Which is crazy. um, And it feels like, I'm not into predictions, but it does feel like we've like moved a little bit
0: closer to that. Um,
1: So- um,
0: You can give yourself a pat pat on the back there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So- so I so like there's a few ways to think about it. One is um, I think talent is the ultimate audience acquirer. Um, I feel that in the social era where we follow individuals, um, when an individual goes to a company, right whether that's a large company like you know the New York Times or The Washington Post or, they start a new company, like what the Smiths are doing, what Justin and Ben are doing. Um, You immediately kind of have this head start for like attention and audience acquisition because individuals now have fans because of these platforms and being able to then bring those individuals within your ecosystem, um, you know, brings, could be, could be an existing audience that's already there or an entirely new audience, but it's a great way to start to drive, you know, deeper audience, um, and kind of a larger focus by, you know, acquiring or assigning individuals. Um, what I like on the talent side as it relates to media companies is I think media companies are ultimate retainers. Like they create like a, um, a vast amount of content across a lot of verticals, whether that's, you know, news or like, let's use the New York Times as their a good example, like gaming, cooking, news, like all of these passion points when they think about bringing in new talent, right? I think the right formula is like, okay, let's bring in a, you know, Taylor Lorenz to the Washington post. Um, You know, she's creating on this new beat. Her audience is coming here. They love this content. And because of the way the model works, you know, you subscribe now to the Washington post because you want Taylor Lorenz's content, but now you're staying for everything else. You're staying for the politics content. You're staying for all these other things. And it's just a very, simple way to show the value of, you know, why you subscribe to something because you're already interested in this particular individual. And now you're getting all of this value out on top of that. Um, I think we're still like early days with how media companies really, really think about that from an economic point of view. Like, I think, um, I definitely subscribe to the idea that individuals get a lot of value when they write for media companies. Like I think it's very easy to like look from the outside and be like, well, they have this massive audience and they're creating this great content and why aren't they like getting all of that value for themselves? But, you know, if you ask a lot of individuals, especially creators or writers that work at these media companies, there's a ton of value with having editors, having built in distribution, understanding audience development, um, you know, having... Uh, uh, having the value and the reputation of like this brand behind them, like in terms of like validation and authenticity to the work that they do, so there's an amazing operation, i.e., like a record label type structure set up at these media companies that really allows these individuals to focus on what they do do best, which is like creating and continue to create. The Substack model, like when you know these individuals have kind of gone on their own, I think one um, one point to bring up is that you know, all of the burden starts to fall on them. You know, they might've been writers at the New York times have accrued this big audience focused on a particular beat. Now they're going and bringing that over to themselves, you know, in order to like drive more revenue for themselves and build and like, stop, you know, let's say like contributing reputation and value to a bigger brand and, you know, getting, getting more of that value themselves. But now all of a sudden they're doing a million things that they otherwise wouldn't be doing. They have to think about accounting and finance and distribution and, different um different ways to design and different ways to create formats and what that could really start to look like and you know for some that I think are a lot more entrepreneurial like that could be an exciting thing um, as they think about building this new company but for a lot of others you know it could it could be somewhat of a distraction it could be like well you know I enjoy doing what I'm doing. And I'm building my career and value out of that. And the support of what this company does is great there. Um, Where a major shift has happened is that I think media companies used to not think this way. Like if you like look at things written like a decade ago in like the Atlantic, or, you know, I I guess more, more like accurately, like a Neiman's labs, it was really all about like the brand coming first. Like it's all about the media brand. That's the relationship with the audience. It's the brand, it's the brand, it's the brand. When individuals start to become um, more about themselves, it's not the place for them. And I think that's really shifted. I think there's been a strong acknowledgement of understanding the value of individuals, the relationship of what a larger brand can do for an individual's brand, and how those things could kind of work together to come to a common consensus and drive that value up.
0: Right now, now it's lead lead with the individual. The brand supports you. You the 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 individual brings someone in, and the brand is actually there to make it stickier and, and retain the person, retain the user.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And like, and like, there are some like examples of where that's different. Like I think morning brew is a great example of where the brand has really just been the, been like the value relationship there. Like they definitely have a ton of amazing talent and great people there. Um, and I think people definitely do follow based on that. But I think morning brew in itself has become like a brand people are tied to. I think very similarly, like if you look at other, like, TCG type companies like Meat Eater and Hodinkee and and Barstool, like um, it's very similar, right? Like people have deep passion around these certain areas. They love the programming and the content and the community and the relationships that are effectively fostered there, and that's why they're there. And even though the audience is maybe smaller than a hundred million, you know, DAUs that we used to celebrate from like a CNN and the Washington Post, like that audience, that like ARPU, and you know, they'll like relationship is just way stronger and, you know, kind of way more concrete. And, um, and yeah, like, I think, I think crypto does unlock this. I mean, I like do believe that there are a ton of things that are happening in the web three ecosystem that really start to unlock what this relationship looks like. Like I wrote an article, why subscribe when you can invest, which really hits on this. It's like a lot of these subscript, sub subscriptions that I subscribe to, um, or maybe individual like people that I follow on Twitter, um, Sometimes I read it, sometimes I consume it if I have time, like some more than others. But for the most part, like the feeling of subscribing for me in those arenas was really less about me wanting to get access to that content and more me wanting to kind of support and invest in that individual for them to continue doing what they're doing, as well as there may be themes or you know, topics that they write about that I think are important that I want them to continue to be putting out in market. So like the feelings really are more towards like me like investing, contributing in this individual or or this media company versus you know, me just wanting to pay for something in order to kind of get that content. And that is, I think, a very crypto-esque move. It's more of like an active consumer type move. And I don't think it's the broader, you know, consumer landscape. I think it's a more kind of focused landscape, but I think that that's a arena that really, that we really start to see like this, you know, like relationship of like artist to fan really start to emerge a bit more in the media space.
0: All right, everyone, quick break from the show to share a big update from our friends at Paraswap, the best platform to stake, swap, trade, farm and more. Paraswap just launched gas refunds. Based on how much you stake, you can now get up to 100% of your gas refunded on all of your swaps on Paraswap. This is huge for anyone who has spent a lot of time in DeFi, or maybe it's just starting out. You know how egregiously expensive the gas transactions can get. The gas fees are ridiculous at some points in time. And now you can get those entirely refunded on Paraswap to participate. All you need to do is stake a minimum of 500 PSP. Big shout out to the Paraswap DAO for making these refunds possible. Really, it's just, it's tough to be Paraswap right now. They give you the best prices. Uh, They save you money. You've got this gas refund if you stake PSP. They've got a smooth and really user-friendly interface, fast swapping. It's really everything that you'd want from a DeFi platform. If you don't use them already, check out Paraswap today at paraswap.io. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah. What does this look like more in practice? Because I think Web3 and crypto has kind of shifted the narrative a little bit, right? You've got this verifiable on-chain truth. You've got creator compensation changing with things like NFTs. You've got uh, unique ownership over digital assets, right, and digital property rights for the first time ever. How do all of these kind of narrative shifts and technological shifts change traditional media companies when it comes to anything from creator compensation to business models to their brand, right? How does all of that change as a result of crypto?
1: Yeah, so... So one theme that I think is very important um, that I've been pushing. <laughs> so it may—it's uh, definitely a bias, <laughs> like any good uh, narrative. <laughs> a, yeah, it's definitely a biased point of view. But I do think that there is enough happening in crypto around, like what you mentioned, like being able to own media, being able to invest in creators, being able to seek provenance on information, being able to manage kind of ownership and distribution and the rights of that content, where I do think we are evolving into a new genre of media versus just thinking about how like these new functions influence existing structures and setups. And I do think that there is an opportunity there. Like I do think media companies should be thinking about NFTs. I think there could be smarter ways to like build a more hierarchical approach to the subscription relationship. I think there's smarter ways to be able to work with brands. But I do think for the most part, like this is creating a new set of creator. This is creating a new set of consumer and people that are very you know crypto native in their genre, similar to like how K-pop came out of, you know, music or, you know, other, other sorts of examples there. So one thing I think is like, we are emerging on a new genre of people who like to create and consume in this new environment um, where it all comes together versus just thinking about how crypto starts to evolve and, you know, build out new media. Um, I think every, and not to go too deep, but I think every example you gave has its own sort of path as to what it opens up what challenges it may face, how it could be leveraged and used. Um, one that's widely discussed is like CCO. So basically what a lot of these NFT projects are doing, which is, you know, let's launch an NFT. Um, if you purchase the NFT, oftentimes a PFP, you get full commercial rights to use it however you wish. So board Ape, you know, board Ape, Arguably, like early pioneer in this, Nouns is another pioneer in this. Um, But it's something that the crypto community gets really excited about. They love the idea that if they're purchasing this piece of what they call IP, um, now they could like build on top of it and there could be value there. And there's great examples of that. Like Hume is doing it with Angel Baby in the fluff world ecosystem, Jenkins the valet is doing it with Jenkins, their board ape in the board ape ecosystem. So there are like a couple examples of what that starts to look like, where there's new creative IP happening because of CCO. I think that that narrative is um, kind of misaligned. I think that the value of CCO is way less about getting more like long tail or new creators to create on top of this IP and this amazing IP is going to emerge. Again, the examples of like a pixel vault and a human others, I think are exceptions to the rule for the most part on the CCO side, because I do think, I do think we're, we're very much uh, discounting how hard it is to create like how strategic it is to program and the talent that kind of goes behind that, that I don't think can necessarily be substituted completely by a long tail. But what I do like about CCO that I think it unlocks in the media space is very similar to like what I think Facebook unlocked in the media space, which was if you're a media company or you're a creator and all of a sudden, you know, you had your own blog or your own website, and now you're going to create it on Facebook you now reach just a more massive audience, right? Like a lot of users are on Facebook. You're able to leverage their like advertising targeting systems in order to reach them. You know, they're already in that environment. So they're probably more inclined to like participate and engage. And it was an amazing way to like think about like what distribution and acquisition starts to look like if you're creating something new and what platforms to use. CCO, I think is the same. I think if you're building, you know, a a storyline or a media company on top of a Bored Ape or a noun or a fluff, um, you have this built in audience that is already both like socially and financially invested within that ecosystem that immediately is like drawn to participate. So Jenkins the valet drops and you know they are great storytellers and they're doing an amazing job but they also have this immediate built-in audience of board ape holders which want to root for the success of anything built within the board ape ecosystem are socially and financially incentivized to do so so they're immediately going to you know uh, flock to this and be a part of it and same with nouns and same with others so like i like the idea of pfps or these nft larger nft projects doing cco being the new platforms where people, when they're creating something, it could be something completely native and unique like a Jenkins, or it could be like, hey, I'm creating a media company and here's how I'm going to enter the Board ape ecosystem and reach that audience. It's kind of a new way of acquisition and distribution that I think is very smart. And you're seeing like Universal Music do it with you know, launching like a Board ape band, um, hopefully the content's great, like hopefully it's an amazing experience, but net net, what it really unlocks is now all of a sudden you have this massive board Ape audience that's like completely loyal and crazy about everything in their ecosystem immediately like pushing this up and being a part of it. So that's kind of like one example that I think is interesting. Um, You know, I, in my early poet days, like the big idea was like provenance of information, supply chain of information. So being able to like see how things were created, how things were changed, like understanding if something is real versus fake or how it was adjusted. Um, where I really see that blowing up a lot more on the media side is when we start to move NFTs from like a product to a process. So not just thinking of NFTs as like the end of the line of, hey, I created something and now it's an NFT, but really starting to think about how NFT, the process starts to integrate within the creative flow. So if you're creating something in BlockWorks, whether it's you know audio or text or video, the first path to publish is minting it on chain where you could manage the permissions and, you know, have a, have a stamp of its, you know, originality. And then you create and structure from there. And that's where I think we really start to see like models and behaviors start to change when it really starts to become something more seamless and convenient for the creators to leverage and use. Um, But again, there there's like a million angles. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let me, let me actually ask you on one thing on there. Like I like the, I've heard you say this before, like NFTs moving from, product to process. And to me, that looks like right now. So we're creating these NFTs behind the scene right now. And I think, yeah, again, by the time we launch this episode, they'll be fully live, but it's been an absolute, I don't want to call it a nightmare, but like the, yeah. the technology is still so bad to create this stuff. Our CTO had to build literally everything in-house and these NFTs are actually acting as a VIP, uh, a, they're a lifetime pass for our conference and b they are you get access to like the, the meet the speaker room uh to the to like the dinner the night before the, they're like a vip pass and a whole bunch of other things that we'll announce soon but none of this technology exists yet uh, and so our cto and our engineering team actually had to build all this in house when you think about like moving from product to process does that mean inside the cms for example when we write an article you click when you click publish that also mints the piece on chain and if so how does that I guess the skeptic in me is like what does that actually do? How does that actually change things? And do fans, I know it's like oh you get to own the article then. It's like if I'm a fan or a reader of Blockworks I'm like I don't really want to read the article. The like the new story that Turnin Group just invested in this new company. I'm like, I don't care about that. I just want to get the news. Yeah. I don't want to own the article. It's like what does that actually change?
1: Yeah. Um so you bring up two big points. One is um I'll start with the second point with what it actually changes. So this is where I think like media companies or individuals that launch these sort of projects need to focus a lot of time, which is like the end what or the value add, right? It's like, okay, you want to do an NFT project. You want to kind of put it out in market, have it purchasable by your audience. But what do they get out of it, right? And I think media companies have struggled with that for a very long time. Like you've looked at, you know, the hierarchical value of a subscription to like a major media company. And usually there's, if there's a tier, there's two or three tiers, right? One is like free. The second is you subscribe, you get content. The third is like, here's a premium subscription. Usually that's like ad free is the value add, or maybe you get access to like more subscriber verticals. But there's like very little effort that goes into like when you ask a customer to pay more, what they're actually getting on top of what they get, you know, today. And it's usually just content. I think the information did a really good job here. Like if you look at the information's um, subscription relationship, it's not just about content. It's about to like what you're doing, going to the conferences, getting early access. Maybe there's like collectibles or experiences or things that can be done there. But there's a very... um, Conscious effort to like build something that gives more value when you're asking customers to pay more money that you could then give back. Um, that's a struggle for a lot of media companies, right? And I think when you think about just throwing NFTs or you know products that could be purchased or owned within an ecosystem. Um, Right now, because it's early days, it's like, oh, well, if we launch this, it's going to be valuable. People could collect it. Maybe they'll like it, but then there may be secondary around it. So they'll want to buy it because it'll go up in, in value and price. When it comes to like, the utility user experience of that, like that's only going to go so far, right? So if you want to put an NFT out in market on the media side, I really think there needs to be like a very focused, conscious effort to basically say, okay, like this is what they get. They get early access to certain events. There's a private community where, you know, influential people could have conversations with one another, there may be a way for you to vote and decide on which like areas or topics we should start focusing on, like more as like a service journalism or service media in order to give us more value. But that's something that, you know, takes a lot of time, is deep in expertise and needs to be focused on. So I think the major unlock there is way less around like, launching NFTs and putting like a crypto strategy out in market and more like what energy or efforts are you going to do to build an entirely new product or a new experience that, you know, answers the question, why, why should I buy this and why is this valuable? Um, on the tooling side, you bring up a great point because I think there's a lot of crypto native tools that are being created. Um, you know i think you see with like what Mirror's doing on like the creation and coordination side you know on the nft side you're right like there's so many like every single person that i feel like i talked to wants to launch an nft and there's no blueprint like there's like some companies you could talk to you could maybe do this but it's like no i just want to like go and launch this and it's like well you know unfortunately that's not as crystal clear today so i am curious like if there is a more interesting skeuomorphic way to start integrating that in like i think we're going to see like a lot of these platforms be built that are truly crypto native that may allow you to like create content minted on chain see the providence you know launch a token around the community launch an nft that could kind of give access to badging but i wonder if there's parts of that that start to get integrated within more existing systems like i wonder if twitter you know starts to think about okay if you're you know uploading an image on and i talked about this like back in like 2018 i think at poet one thing i really wanted to do was like what if twitter when you posted something like a tweet you know you minted it on chain so you manage the permissions so like right now like twitter is basically like free content for everyone a lot of it is great ip whether it's a tweet or it's an image or it's a video or it's being leveraged to like link back to another site. And if Twitter wants to encourage more creators to create natively on their platform, like what if you had the ability to not just like do a super follow, but like lock the tweet, like here's the tweet. If you want to be able to like leverage the image or use it for licensing the contracts within there Um, you know, if you want to be able to reference it in an article, like here's the rules on like a link back. Like I think there's, I'm not big on skeuomorphism in crypto, but I do think that if you are trying to think about how to see more examples and push more things that are more crypto native out into market, integrating them within existing tools could be interesting, whether it's a CMS, um, you know, like what WAPO does with Arc or, or a Medium, or it's like these social platform tools. I think Instagram's hinted that you may start seeing like things like that soon. But I think that's where we're going to start to see a more broader reach, you know, kind of like like, I guess, broader reception as to like what this could mean and how it could be used. Um, But yeah, I do think it does involve like being more integrated within people's existing workflow versus having them have to seek and search outside of that workflow and figure it out. I think many people will give up.
0: Yeah. How do you think about scarce memberships? And the reason I ask about this is, uh, so all these media companies, they were, primarily ad-based businesses. And then they, and then Facebook comes along, kind of eats up their ad-based business. So then they move to subscription businesses. But everyone kind of, it's a, it's a very corporate decision. Like what should we charge for subscription? Okay, 9 dollars for this per month. And if we launch an enterprise research product, it's, you know, Politico Pro, $20,000 a year or something, right? It's very top-down decision-making instead of bottoms up. And so the only way to scale that business is to just get more members, right? So you might have 100 members paying... And then you have a thousand and it's when you're projecting out your revenues, it's all about scaling the number of users who are paying that fixed price for your membership. How do you think about NFTs as the membership and what that does for having and what that means for the business model when you have like, when you flip the mindset of, okay, how can we scale users to, all right, this is a scarce membership model. Now it's all about how do we actually add value to the membership? Uh, and and yeah. even like, how are you actually making money? Is that a sustainable business model? Because you're just making money on the royalties, right? Instead of on the actual sale. So, yeah, five yeah. questions in there for you.
1: There's one like galaxy thought that I really have been obsessed with lately um, because it's trying to answer a couple challenges for me. One is I think it's very important for content to be accessible to everyone. Um, you know, putting on my news hat, that was always a very important. Um, I'd say like dialogue to have like within these news companies because effectively news is a service where you're providing value to a community. But once you start to paywall everything, right? Many can't access that service and many of which who need it most um, in like certain areas of the country or the world aren't getting it because they can't afford it. So it really creates a, a more black and white relationship between like who gets information and who doesn't. So I try to enter this from thinking about like, well, what if all content is accessible and free? Um, So there's basically a bottom layer, which is, you know, all content is accessible. It could be an ad supported type model. But if you want to consume content or get content from the Washington Post, right, you're able to do so. Then there's like a middle tier. And that middle tier is kind of the subscription model. And you really need to kind of think about what else you get through that. Like maybe there is some, you know, Maybe there are some unique ways to do a more like curated, aggregated type subscription that you get as a subscriber. Maybe there's like an email newsletter product that you get as a subscriber. Maybe you get access to like more multimedia channels like YouTube or videos because you're a subscriber. But there's a little more value being created there as a subscriber than, you know, on the advertising free tier. And then there's like the NFT kind of super, super, super member type tier. And this, I think, is like a very important one to work through, because one thing that I think we've seen in crypto is that not everyone will pay for everything. Some people will pay a lot. Some people will pay a lot, a lot. Like some people will go like way beyond what you could ever think about what you'd price this as, um, you know, for many different reasons. But that's been unlocked. And in media, you've seen that in like the Guardian model, like way more of like, uh donation type model where it's like okay like we have advertising and maybe subscriptions but if people want to give more they'll give more and i think the guardian's shown that like a lot of people are willing to donate and they've built a good business around that if you start to substitute that with nfts what i think you could do is you could create like a thousand person nft access badge for let's say the washington post and it's at a fixed cost let's say you know it's 5000 or like two ETH, let's say, like it's two ETH to become, you know, a Washington Post founding member. And with that two ETH, right, you get this NFT and the NFT gives you access to all of the content. Going back to what I said earlier, you now have to really create like what nuances and differentiation is created here. Like whether that's being able to be in these exclusive communities, being brought to in-person events, being able to get behind the scenes looks, like it really needs to be valuable but it's all contained within that tier. What I think starts to happen there is when you have that like pyramid of like this NFT is like sold to a thousand people top of the model and you actually provide a lot of value to those NFT holders, And it's scarce and now starts to become a very attractive thing for like other people as they start to come in, like people who may be in DC or may really like news or may want to be a deeper part of the community that weren't in on the drop now see how much value is accrued here. And now they want to be able to buy this on the secondary and there's incentive to be able to hold or sell or whatever. But I think what that could start to introduce with doing really like in my mind, like So far, it's been pretty shoddy economics I've worked through, but like you really start to have like a waterfall type approach where you do have people that'll spend a lot of money that want to be a deep part within the community, that want to get access, that want the utility of what this thing unlocks. They pay a lot. The subscription gives a very like standard kind of like renewal type structure set up where you're creating content and doing experiences and that layers there. And then the content in the bottom effectively gets to be free. Like you're no longer in a situation where like, you know, you're there's a threat. To, there's a threat to democracy because the best content is held behind closed doors, and people can't afford it, and all of that, you know, uh, um, structure set up. So, like, that's one angle that I think starts to become really interesting. Again, the onus is kind of on these media companies to build those experiences out. To date, you really haven't seen too much energy, you know, being being done there besides just more content or more verticals. So, it's definitely like a new terrain but i think like it's a very interesting way to think about this because i think if done right people will you know feel a tight connection want to be a part of it i think like friends with benefits is like you know an example of like what that could start to look like on a media side if you start to tear it more down so, right.
0: so there are usually a small a really small percentage of people who will pay a really exorbitant amount of money to be really close to uh, really close supporters and fans of either companies or people. And I think what Substack did is it unlocked that, I need to figure out a fancier way of saying this, but like that, oh shit moment for a lot of journalists where they're like, oh shit, right? I have a hundred people who, is, who are gonna pay $1,000 a year to read my stuff, oh my God, or $500 a year. And I think media, one thing that NFTs are gonna do for media companies is unlock that, oh shit moment, right? There's no, yeah. there's no top-down model in the world that you could put the founders of Yuga Labs in a room together and with the smartest investors and the smartest media operators in the world. The the floor right now is 107 ETH. So what's the math on that? It's like 350,000 bucks. There's no no model that says, yeah, let's price our NFT at 350,000 bucks. And the only way that it became that valuable, obviously, is by adding a lot of value to the community. But I think that there are a lot of media companies that when they launch NFTs, everyone's going to underprice them. Because they they if if they're really valuable media companies, there's a really small percentage of your fans that are gonna pay a lot of money. And so we're launching. I mean, we'll see how this NFT it'll be post NFT drop, but we're dropping these, the pre-sales tomorrow. It's 1.1 ETH, which is a lot of money for a mint. But we think that mm-hmm. we've built this business for four years and we have a massive audience of like very loyal people that there are 555 people out there who will pay 1.1 ETH to be, to get early, to get, to skip the line at our conferences, to get access to all of our products that we launch early, to be in the VIP room at, at all of our conferences. So, I mean, we'll see, but I think it's an interesting test that all of these media companies should play around with.
1: Yeah. And it goes and it does go back to the genre, like the new genres play, right? I think you know, Blockworks has an audience that's very different than, you know, the New York Times audience, right? And I think when you're introducing a lot of new native type products that can be utilized and seen as valuable for that audience, it clicks way more with yours than, you know, in New York Times. Same right. with like, if Yuga, like how Yuga did this, but then, you know, there's been attempts to do this with Dapper, right? Like you, you like Disney could have easily tried to get in here, but I think it's, I think it's a testament to like the community and, you know, the new genre that was created here where that's kind of where the energy is. So I'm like super excited to see like how that starts to pan out, like as media companies start to think about NFTs, how the audience receives it, um, how these new kind of like companies are being created bottoms up through what these NFTs are unlocking. And then, you know, projects like yours, I Um, I think there definitely is an argument to be made that. This is completely new and it's going to be a lot more successful for the companies that are doing it grounds up than ones that are looking to incorporate it later on.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you a targeted question about DAOs, actually. So I think I I have a feeling I know what you'd say when I asked about DAOs, which is like DAOs are a really exciting opportunity. They're a way to bundle a lot of people together. Uh, Bankless DAO is doing interesting things. There are all these other crypto native DAOs. How would you, if you were talking to the CEO, Erica Nardini, right? The CEO of Barstool Mm -hmm. Sports or, or maybe Austin Alex of Morning Brew. Like if you are a web two media company, maybe even ESPN, right? How do you talk to, how would you, should they be thinking about DAOs? What's the opportunity for more of like a web two company to think about DAOs or leave it alone? Don't even touch it.
1: On the media side with DAOs, what I really like about it is, I think media is a massive services business. Like you basically are providing value to an audience, and they either pay for it with their attention or with their wallets. Um, and DAOs provide a really unique, fun feedback loop in order to help better that service. So. The way that I think about DAO structures and existing like like Web2 companies is very similar to like how you think about like doing like a questionnaire or research or, you know, around like a certain topic, but it's more like real time. It's like being a comedian, like you're on the stage, you make a joke, you know, whether it's funny or whether you flopped right away, like DAO type behavior is very similar. And what I think could be very interesting on the Web2 side is like thinking about, media as a services business, like how do you build a better feedback loop that allows people to feel a lot more deeply involved and invested and communicative over things you may be doing? Like, should we launch this vertical? What are the thoughts on, you know, focusing on this area? How about this talent? What do people think about, you know, what's happening in this space or this news or other sorts of things there? Um, And I think, That's a very interesting way to, like, rethink the way that, like, people get research and information around, like, what their customer and community wants in more real time, where they feel a way tighter connection to it than basically just, like, a lab rat or, like, a guinea pig in those situations. The other is I think, like, DAOs as an internal tool are very fascinating in the Web2 space. Like, anyone who's worked at a media company knows that, like, it's basically sea level down. And sure, there's Slack and all of these other things and there's a town hall. But for the most part, like the people on like the bottom half who are often like more younger or emerging creators or business leads or so forth, um, it's very hard for their ideas to be heard. It's very hard for them to execute. There's like this hierarchical approach to like, okay, here's what we want to do, but it has to go through here. And how does this person feel? Well, we know how this person acts, goes to the top, it fucking dies, right? And (laughs) I I love the idea of like, Web2 media companies thinking about DAOs as a way to like fully democratize the creative process and like identify like contributors or creators or ideas or thinkers like way more from the bottoms up to be able to both like give value and cred to these ideas, to be able to help push the business forward, to give people a kind of more open forum to like contribute and share thoughts. And I think like a great example to think about is like, it's like, especially now because of COVID and most people are working from home. It's like when you used to be in the office, you'd be like sitting in a meeting and maybe whiteboarding or people coming up with ideas and you'd turn to the person next to you and be like, Oh my God, like what, like what if we did this? This would be interesting. And things kind of like emerged out of that. And oftentimes like an idea could be like construed and approved and then, you know, executed through, through completion. And now when everyone's home, it's like, people are on Slack. They don't really want to like, Chime in or send an idea. Like it's just like it's 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 a way more unnatural way of like right. building a creative process and sharing ideas and getting contributions. And I think a DAO structure could be really cool. There, I mean, look like you look at these DAO communities, like in Discords. Like you look at like a Mad Realities is a great example. Um, or you know, you could even look at like platform side Mirror and like people chime in. They have ideas. They share. They have commentary. And I think when you think about how you're building a company internally. It's a really cool way to like think about how you start to like bring up value and bring up ideas and give individuals more exposure that may not have the resume or, you know, the on paper chain of like, oh, like this next big product is going to come from this person. But thinking through how these mechanics could work, I think could really change the way these companies work, which indirectly makes them extremely more valuable because, right. you know, their their employees feel heard, they're executing, they're feeling like they're a part of it. So that's how I think about like
0: that. It's really interesting you say that. I feel like one of the biggest changes with crypto, Jared, is um, in web two, you build a product and then you try to find your community and you try to find your users. In web three, you build the community, oftentimes first, and you build the users. And then you're like, hey, friends, what should we build? What do we want to build? You have some general sense of it. But we launched this Blockworks Discord maybe three weeks ago. We already have about 5,000 people in this thing. And there's a suggestions channel in the Blockworks Discord. And it's been one of the most... Helpful things that we have at Blockworks for me because I'm like, oh my God, we have these diehard Blockworks users and readers and conference attendees and podcast listeners, and they're literally telling us for free what they want. And yeah. if there was some sort of Blockworks DAO, it's like maybe now there's an incentive mechanism to increase the scale at which that's happening. So
1: yeah, and like one, like I actually think that's the biggest unlock. Like I've used this in other examples, but like I talk about like how like the entire like market for local news completely changed with, you know, the advertising model and the scale type model where local news was really a services type business. And then eventually just because the business models, they had to cover more national coverage and reach larger audiences. So it became way less of a service to the community and way more, you know, just broad media. And I think when you think about a DAO, like if a community, you know, co-owns, you know, the local newspaper and was able to, you know, share thoughts on like what should be coverage or what's important or, and, you know, what things are going to be the most valuable to, you know, people like all the residents who live there, it really starts to become an amazing service type business. Now the challenge that I often get is like, you know, when you subscribe to a media company, especially in news, right? Like you don't want to, you know, impact the editorial judgment and you don't want to be like telling, telling writers what they should write. But I do think that there's different genres or avenues that could be created there where that value is strong held. Like in your example of blockworks, it's like, if your audience wants coverage around this theme or vertical, or wants to like get media in a different, you know, asset form, like they want more video, they want more podcasts. Like what an amazing way to do that. Especially if you could think through on the downside, like incentives that encourage people to do that more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you to kind of start to wrap it up. Hope you've, uh, I'm glad you had your caffeine before this because it's this been a <laughs> big episode. Um, I want to actually ask you if you were in my shoes at BlockWorks. I think you know a lot. I think you know a decent bit about BlockWorks at this point, right? Been around for almost four years now. We've got about 50 folks who work here. We've got a big podcast network and an amazing editorial and news team and conferences and webinars and, uh, you know, one of the fastest growing newsletters in the industry if you're in my shoes, uh, what are you doing at BlockWorks? What kind of things maybe are we not seeing or what kind of more crypto native things should we be thinking about?
1: On the media side, what I think the most important thing is really around cont- like context, like there's more and more people that are meeting their Web3 inflection point every day, like whether they there's a certain topic like sports or fashion or entertainment that they're into, which they read that like is now doing an NFT or a Web3 and you can't you can't underestimate the value of content in terms of the zero to one context for people like onboarding into the space really is. And it's hard because there's just like a vast amount, like there's like the NFT space, there's, you know, in the NFT space that trickles all the way down to where you have like PFPs, you have membership, there's DeFi, there's, you know, all of these different things. But I think a huge value add for these media companies, especially like a Blockworks, is really bringing in that context. So I think being able to hear voices from maybe people outside of crypto that are learning and stepping into this space and how they got there is very interesting, especially as you attract audiences on the event side. Um, I think crypto really like contains, like keeps the same people throughout all of these different conferences and points of view, which is great because there's like, very few experts currently in this space that could talk about these things. So it's important to kind of get them and get that information there. But I, I also love the idea of like a beginner's mindset as it's related to content, especially on the block work side and the event side where like you start to bring people that may be working in media or doing things outside or maybe new to crypto or may not understand crypto and kind of giving them a sort of platform to kind of like think through and talk through, um, where their challenges or what their approach really is, I think is fascinating because I think we're, um, I think going back to this idea of crypto being new genres, I think there's an audience here that really loves and understands crypto and web three and kind of is deeply focused on what it could emerge and where it could go. But I think that audience, you know, would also love to hear what's happening outside of crypto as well to like better influence how they think about things and how they should approach it. Like when we, when we first started Darkstar DAO. um, which is like our blog on Mirror. Um, the 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 plan of attack was basically: we want to be able to reach crypto users who like want to better understand the world of media and reach media users who want to better understand the world of crypto and how can we do that within the same article right so really thinking about like how this could be presented to both of those audiences i think if blockworks could do that that becomes a very kind of fascinating approach because i don't see many media companies in the web3 space like really kind of focus on how they reach like both audiences knowing that you know that that non crypto audience is just going to slowly continue to to creep in and drip in and you want to be the funnel for that
0: yeah i mean i think the key for media companies or someone like blockworks there is that for the last 10 years media crypto media was just like you you could just have crypto as a topic right crypto was the industry and now there are sectors forming right so people don't just come into crypto now they come into like finance people come into DeFi, right or more like the cultural side of things, like artists and music- and musicians uh come into NFTs, for example, or some people like the gamers come into gaming. And now for the first time ever, you have these like sectors that have formed in crypto. And so I think yep. it's important for media companies uh like us, like at Blockworks, right? To not just cover crypto, but launch and build uh more like a vertical verticalized vertically specific uh content houses inside of the Blockworks brand. So no, I think uh yeah, I think you make a good point. So, awesome, Jared awesome. man, I'm tapped out. <laughs> tapped <laughs> out of my awesome. media questions. <laughs> it was a great.
1: It was a great. It was my first. uh, I'm on the West Coast today, so it was my first meeting of the day. So I feel super inspired and excited, and just appreciate you having me on. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, so it's great. I to appreciate be here.
0: that. Cool man. All right. Well, uh, be well. Thank you. Uh, Best of luck with everything at uh, TCG, and uh, yeah, we will talk soon, my friend.
1: Thank you you <laughs>